Well, welcome to The Professor and the Hack uh, with me. I'm the Hack. I'm Hugh Rimmington. And, and The Professor, of course, is Peter Van Onselen. I feel like I fit both titles. You do now. <laughs> but for the sake of those who doubt your professorship, we may as well point out that you are Professor of Politics at Griffith in, and UWA. Yes. Yeah, and, you, and you're a political editor with 10. Moved more into the journalism side, though, now, obviously. I still have the positions of the unis, but it's the hopefully the insights from the spending time in Canberra that, that we'll be talking a bit more about. Mm, we're going to make a hack of you. Yeah, and future <laughs> generations of historians, political historians, will look back at this because this is our first podcast and they will, they will ponder what on earth we'll be thinking, I think. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, it's interesting, I have to say, like... You've been in journalism obviously for years and, and have been an insider for a long time, did the job that I'm doing now before me in Canberra. I've been really surprised since in the last few years I, I came more into political journalism just how much direct contact you have as a journalist covering politics directly with the politicians. I remember as a full-time academic, you know, it was all organised through the media advisors and all the rest of it. And part of this might be the way things have changed, but, you know, you're texting, you're calling... You, know, you talk to people with third-party interests of any sort and they struggle to get access to these guys, it actually is both a privilege and a vice. You know, you've got such close communication, you get a real sense of how much they need the media as well as we obviously want to have that contact to tell the story. Sure, and half, half the argument goes is that we get far too close to the politicians. And, and you've got to watch that. Yeah. We get captured by them. But enough about us, uh, PVO. There's an election going on. Who's going to win it? Well, I think that there's no way that Scott Morrison can win it and I'm happy to have that replayed time and time again uh, to my shame if he does win it because it'll have been such an amazing story if he mounts a comeback that I won't be Robinson Crusoe in predicting that he loses. He's starting as a minority government, 74 seats at best, and he needs 76 to reclaim the majority that Malcolm Turnbull picked up in 2016. I can only see him losing seats. There might be the odd pickup, maybe Wentworth, but, oh, heavens, you know, Victoria at least half a dozen seats. They think they're doing well in Queensland. I don't see it. You can work your way all around the country. And to me, uh, this election has only got one outcome. If I'm wrong, John Houston will be the happiest man in the world because he ceases to be the person that lost the unlosable election. Bill Shorten replaces him. Absolutely. Uh, it's funny also because for the coalition they've got a lot of stuff running against them, plainly the polls long distance have been very poor for them and uh, a lot of the, the pros in the game say that you look at the two-party preferred trend lines, that's the key indicator mm. and, and that that has been entirely horrible for the coalition for a very long time. But there's another thing that, that's thrown up against them and that is that the, you know, the vagaries of redistributions mean that there are uh, new seats and redistributions, which also work against the coalition. There are two new seats. There's Bean as a new seat named mm-hmm. after the war correspondent Charles Bean and in, um, in, in the ACT, which will certainly go to Labor. Absolutely. Another seat called Fraser uh, in Victoria, which will certainly go to Labor. So two new seats go that way. And they've got another seat down there in, in Victoria, Dunkley, uh, which is is currently held by a Liberal, and that will also go to Labor. Well, yeah, certainly. You, I thought I think it would have gone to Labor even without the redistribution, but now it is what they call notionally a Labor seat. So that's a he's one of those classic members. Uh, Chris Cruther, I think, is his name. He's not going to get as many resources as he would like on the campaign trail. He's an incumbent, but why toss half a million bucks to a seat you don't think you can hold? Go looking elsewhere in the sort of the traditional sandbagging exercise. But Hugh, I, I want you to nail your colours to the mast. You, you got me to make a prediction. What's yours? Well, I don't think that anyone uh, can 
win this except for Labor. Uh, the best remote prospect for non-Labor politics would be the idea of some sort of minority government. But I just don't think that that's going to be the way it's going to go. That's funny though, isn't it? You say minority government and you know that almost happened in New South Wales and in the end it didn't. But it's funny how quickly Australians seem comfortable again about that when it almost became a, a dirty word, the idea of that you know, in the lead up to the 2013 election because of the Oakshot Windsor years, which Tony Abbott was able to really sort of have a go at. Yeah, well, nobody votes for a minority government. You know, everyone just goes down and they vote for the yeah. local electorate, et cetera. So, and then, but the outcome winds up being what it is. Um, I, I mean, the thing which really strikes me about this election is that uh, it's been horrible for the coalition over the last three years. Everything basically that could get messy has gotten messy on them and much of that has been down to their own behaviour. Absolutely. You know, again, toppling a, um, a sitting prime minister who was reasonably popular in the electorate or at least not hellishly unpopular. A lesser of evils, what are we saying? Yeah, yeah, so so they've gone through all of that sort of stuff. Then they've got this sort of the coalition partners, the national party are in a world of pain. They're all over the joint. And, uh, and yet I just don't get this overwhelming sense of enthusiasm anywhere uh, for Labor and Bill Shorten other than those who would always be enthusiastic for a Labor and Labor government. So I, I don't know what you're picking up out of that, but, but it seems to me as if out there in the, in the real marketplace there's a deadening sense of um, lack of inspiration. Oh, certainly. I mean, look, Bill Shorten is far from the Prime Minister we have to have as far as a lot of Australians are concerned, but like it or not, he becomes the Prime Minister we have to have if you want to punish the coalition for, you know, the way that they've conducted themselves with all the instability and some of the backflips and the failure to act in areas that younger Australians want them to act in, like, for example, climate change. So right across that spectrum, uh, it's one of those cases of I don't think people are looking to vote Labor in, but they sure are looking to vote the coalition out. Uh, and, and, look, in fairness to Shorten, uh, yes, he's Australia's most unpopular opposition leader, I would say, ever, except... Just before him, Tony Abbott fell into the same category. Uh, the John reason Howard was pretty damned unpopular at one point in time. Well, it depends how you judge it, I guess, as well, because poor old Brendan Nelson fell into single digits, didn't he? But he was taking over straight after. You know, they, they, when you don't get to an election like um, Nelson didn't, and I guess Howard did in '87, but then they got rid of him before 1990. Opposition leaders find it tough. I mean, we're making the same point in a way here. Being popular in opposition is difficult you usually get a new crack at it if you win an election. Even Tony Abbott did. He started with positive ratings, but then they quickly fell away with that budget and the Prince Philip debacle and all the rest of it, the knighting of Prince Philip. So Bill Shorten is unpopular. Australians don't particularly want him, but they want to get rid of the government. And if he does become PM, he'll have a narrow window, I think, with that sort of Aussie fair go attitude of once you are the PM, let's give him a chance. So it'll, that will be an interesting chat for us to have further down the track mm. if that's what happened. Yeah, look, I think one of the things that's always interesting about an election, in fact, is interesting about everything all the time, is that things are shifting in deep and profound ways underneath our feet constantly and trying to read what those changes are, are what make journalism endlessly interesting. But also I think every engaged citizen is looking at a world where things are changing very fast. So among the things that will be happening at this election that haven't happened before is that we have a new kind of a player, and that is GetUp. Mm. It is well-funded. It was got $11 million in the last year in terms of donations. They will be spending millions of dollars at this election. They have targeted seats that they want to go out and get. 
and they are high-profile seats. They're people like they're already door-knocking in Warringah against Tony Abbott, in Dixon against Peter Dutton. They've targeted six seats, all held by uh, conservative liberals. And if they succeed in toppling some of these people, if they're perceived as being the agents of change, that's going to change everyone's calculation, isn't it? Well, it, it certainly is, and it, it, it makes it more difficult because GetUp does tend to target, uh, if you like, conservative Liberals in particular, you know, Peter Dutton, Tony Abbott, these types, it makes it difficult for the Liberal Party because they go into seats that they traditionally take for granted, like Warringah or previously having gone into Wentworth as well uh, and presumably again to help Karen Phelps. What they do is they make that once sort of, if you like, unspoken of compact between the progressive Liberal and the conservative Liberal where they say, well, we don't agree on a lot of things, but the greater enemy is Labor. They make that harder to hold together because what's happening is GetUp jumps in there and it's pointing out to progressive voters who tend to support the Liberals no matter what in seats, you know, that are, you know, dominated by those same progressives. They, they point out to them, guess what? Uh, your party is lagging on all of these sort of issues that you actually believe in. Don't let them take your vote for granted. And then that becomes a problem because if the Liberal Party wants to react to that, which they almost have to. Even Tony Abbott's moderated some of his views since GetUp's jumped into Warringah. When that happens, uh, then that causes them problems in some of the outer metropolitan or particularly the regional seats up in Queensland. So this marriage that the Liberal Conservatives have uh, is sort of, if you like, being exposed as being just for the kids. Yeah, it's, it's funny because one of the things, I think, if you were to get Labor voters and you put them into a gigantic hall, a basketball hall or something... Mm. And you, in there you'll have a kind of an old-style industrial worker and high-vis, you'll have an inner urban progressive of some kind. But my guess is, is that everyone in that room would look at each other and recognise something about themselves, broadly speaking, in the other people who are voting Labour in that hall. If you look at those who are voting for the coalition side of politics, you will get uh, the rural poor uh, who vote National Party traditionally. Yep. Um, Wacker Williams, the National Party senator who's retiring at this election, always said our constituency are the poorest people in Australia and they are basically the rural working class. If you put them in a hall and you put in the Mossman, the Turak, the, the, the Vaucluse, the sort of the, the Wentworth voter who are wealthy who are green-intended in a lot of their votes and the environmental issues, who very strongly supported same-sex marriage, they might look at each other and go, what are we doing in the same place together? So how do you get a political movement, a broad political movement across the coalition parties that can hold together uh, all those disparate strands? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's nigh impossible. I mean, I do think Labor have more commonalities now where they once didn't, uh, but they, they do now. And the the liberal conservative amalgam is, is is one that's becoming harder to hold together, uh, and it's also harder to hold together in the kind of age we're in now, where the idea that you give one community one message and another another that was easier before the sort of pervasive nature of social media and the ability for uh, journalists to point out the inconsistencies from state to state or electorate to electorate that serves the coalition side a greater disservice uh, than I think it does Labor. There are different. I mean, look, it's, I find this interesting because I do think that the Labor Party. You know, there are plenty of conservative working class voters who would ascribe to Abbott's mantra that climate change is crap. But the difference is the people who are the inner city labourites who support climate change and social justice issues that that conservative working class um, tradie or whatever he might be doesn't support, 
what they still have in common is that the latte-sipping lefty still wants tax cuts at the lower end of the spectrum that might support the real working-class blue-collar fellow. And so he or she can kind of, you know, just roll their eyes at this latte-sipping person who's out of touch about climate change but still say at least we're on the same page in equality and fairness and egalitarianism and those are the sort of the things that I think hold Labor together even though it does have some issues that, you know, one side of the party or another don't agree on. So, I mean, one of the things we've seen, and this is quite unusual, it's not unusual for parties to... Uh, to fall apart down their own fracture lines when they're in opposition because they don't have the discipline of government and so they're all trying to... And even more so on the Liberal side, I'd say, Hugh, because in opposition, yep, Labor gets as ill-disciplined as the next. They did it in government at the end with Rudd and Gillard, but they're still a collectivist party, so discipline's more more logical to them. Liberals is the party of the individual. It's like trying to herd cats. But when you're in government, theoretically, I mean, John Howard famously said there's there's nothing wrong with the Liberal Party that an election victory wouldn't fix. Uh, They've had the election victory. They've been in government, and yet they've been falling apart. And and, and again, I I look at the broad conservative side of politics, So, Mm. so not just the Liberal Party, but the National Party as well. And all of them are fractured at each other's throats. Essentially, the whole Peter Dutton move against uh, Malcolm Turnbull was a fight for the soul of the party. Was it going to be a progressive urban party? Was it going to appeal more for outer suburbs and, and other areas who are more deeply conservative? And that's where that lay. The National Party, you've got Barnaby Joyce and, and the current leader, Michael McCormick, you know, obviously nowhere near the same page and, and carrying their own ambitions. If that's what's going on when they're in government, how do you hold it together once the discipline of government is gone? Well, I think I think this is going to be the day of reckoning on the other side of a defeat if that's what happens, if we're both right and if the polls are right and if the pundits are right, if the you know anyone you know, ascribing to the betting agencies are right, uh, then we're going to see a change of government. Then the real action starts, I think, on the right of politics with all of those disagreements you talk about. I mean, even before you get to the differences between the nationals and the liberals or the differences within the liberals, both of which are profound areas of disagreements on the conservative side of politics, even just within the nationals, they don't know what they stand for anymore. I mean, once upon a time, you knew that the nationals were kind of, you know, agrarian socialists, they represented the Bush. But that's not anywhere near as homogenous now as it once was. The Bush now means a lot of different things. You've got coastal communities, uh, which which are more green, if you like, uh, and social justice orientated that were once national areas that the Greens are even taking away, like they've done in the New South Wales state election. You've got really regional areas that are, if you like, tempted by One Nation or, again, in New South Wales, the Shooters Party. You've got other farming communities in more lush areas um, but also in drying up areas that are strong advocates for climate change. The National Farmers Federation are strong believers in climate change but then you've got nationals who are really more representing the mining sector and, and, you know, jobs that are based on coal and you see it up with the Adani project in northern Queensland – the nationals are no longer just the party of the regions because the regions have actually become much more diversified uh, than the national party. Much more disputatious, to use that phrase. <laughs> yeah. So what happens, uh, assuming that uh, assuming that all the, the signs are right, who would ultimately, I know we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but where who is going to emerge as the leading strand in the Liberal Party? Oh, that's a good question. It's, look, it's hard to know. I've tried to look at some of the seats that might be lost depending on how big the defeat is, if, if that's what it is, uh, for the Coalition or for the Liberal Party in particular and, and try to get a sense of 
who sits to the right and who sits to the progressive left of the party. And it's a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. Uh, if you if you try to just draw a line under seats with a margin of 5% or less, it, it, it kind of becomes a similar parliament to now. I think it's very hard to calculate whether the moderates or the conservatives dominate the Liberal Party. But here's what I think, for what it's worth, is is kind of the bigger issue. We saw from the takedown of Malcolm Turnbull, you don't need a majority anymore to defeat the other political party. You just have to be prepared to be the political equivalent of a suicide bomber. And the reactionary right did not have the numbers to defeat Malcolm Turnbull, but they had the willpower to say we're going and we're continuing to go for it until we get what we want. Now, they didn't get what they ultimately wanted, which was Peter Dutton. They weren't far short. If three votes had gone the other way, Peter Dutton would be Prime Minister. Which is why Julie Bishop couldn't be the moderate candidate and that's why her and Christopher Pine have had the fallout that they have because he swung votes behind Morrison even though he and her were very close uh, and that's why she walked out before he delivered his farewell valedictory speech uh, straight after question time. But... The, the they did get close, but a lot of that was people that were Queenslanders, for example, uh, that were muscling in behind Peter Dutton. Also, I think I think listeners should should know this because it's a fascinating thing. Peter Dutton, yes, he's the hard right candidate. His public persona isn't exactly as one of the you know the sort of likable good bloke knockabout, but he's got a lot of good mates within the Liberal Party who are not hard right who are just his friends and, you know, to name just a couple of them, they're retiring now because he didn't win. People like Stephen Chobo and Michael Keenan, they're not hard right-wingers, far from it, but they voted for him and they supported him quite so, so what strongly. So they, what did they see in Peter Dutton that so many people don't see in him? Oh, look, I, I'm not in their head, but they weren't ideological advocates of his. They were just friends. Uh, then you've got the others who were, if you like, I would call them ideological sellouts, but maybe they would consider this harsh. Someone like a Greg Hunt, who is more of a left-wing progressive in the party, he teamed up with Peter Dutton in that showdown to try and get the numbers to get them over the line. And so that helped boost the numbers too. What was that about? Because Greg Hunt... Well, he just wanted to be deputy, wanted to be Liberal deputy. So he was in Victoria, he thought Dutton can only win if a moderate backs as deputy because that tends to be the structure. And so him and Dutton had been talking about this for years in one form or another at some point in time or another... And and years before that, actually, I mean, we're going too far back now, but when they were still in opposition shortly after Kevin Rudd um, had, had become Prime Minister in that period, uh, there was a team that looked like it might form when Joe Hockey was going to take out Malcolm Turnbull and he was running with Peter Dutton as his deputy for the same principle but in reverse. Hockey was the moderate and Peter Dutton would therefore bring some conservative votes across. So that helps bolster the numbers, I guess, is my point. Um, but Peter Dutton behind the scenes also has friends across the party. And I reckon a lot of people that are a little bit removed from that inside the Beltway game probably don't realise that. Uh, he, uh, he, and, in fact, more... he said when he was trying his charm offensive, uh, he said something just in, the, in those, those hours, literally, when he declared himself as a candidate against Turnbull before the vote came in and he didn't get there, he was trying to uh, remodel himself as essentially a hellish nice guy with a with a great sense of humour. Well, he actually does have a good sense of humour. And that's the funny thing, because he does. And but he, he, publicly you don't see it, though, yeah. Hugh. It's like Julia Gillard. I mean, you'd agree she was not dissimilar. It was there, but not after she became PM. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Will Dutton survive? I don't think so. I think Peter Dutton's got a profound problem, partly for what you were saying earlier about get up. Uh, they're, they're right there in his backyard. The redistribution helped him 
fractionally, but he's still got a difficult seat, obviously, a very difficult seat. I'm, I'm, it's curious because he had a 5% swing against him last time and I've been looking at that and trying to think what was that about. But, of course, Turnbull was the Prime Minister mm. and I wondered whether part of that 5% swing against him was really a swing against Turnbull and that with Turnbull gone, a bit of that might come back his way. So his, his margin might be at, at the starting point, perhaps not quite so extreme as as it appears on the numbers. But the devil's advocate to that would be that because he was so front and centre in the takedown of Turnbull, um, even though his electorate is more conservative than not, there'll still be progressive liberals in that electorate and they'll never vote for him potentially because they'll look and say, look, we know what you did to Malcolm Turnbull. This is a problem for a lot of people uh, that are running for the Liberal Party. You know, anyone that signed on for that initial spill uh, of 35, I think it was, for the initial spill... Uh, and then anyone that signed that letter in particular that actually forced the spill subsequently with 43 votes, Malcolm Turnbull insisting on getting all those names and then somehow, I don't know, it leaked to the media after that. How would that I'd, be? I know, amazing, yeah. And and then it's on Twitter and it's everywhere. Labor in all of those seats will be finding a way through the campaign to remind traditional Liberal voters, hey, guess what? The Liberal running in your seat, if you ha- happen to think it was better to have... Malcolm Turnbull than Peter Dutton, well, guess what? Your local guy or girl voted for the spill that brought down Turnbull. Now, there's going to be plenty of people that would never countenance voting against the Liberals that might look at that and go, well, this particular candidate or MP doesn't deserve my vote. While we're in Queensland, uh, the, the beast from north of the border, Clive Palmer, is back at it. Uh, huge. You don't think he can funded. win, do you? Tell me you don't D- think he can well, win. Well, this is actually a really interesting question because there's a kind of a cynical view out there that, oh, man, anyone with money will buy an election. You can buy an election, you know. And this is a really good test because he's got more money, he says, than the Liberal or the Labour Party he will spend on this election. The ads, God help us, have been absolutely everywhere. He's saying he's spending more than $50 million, that he's going to have candidates in every lower house seat and um, so he's certainly doing everything he can to buy the election. He says $50 million, by the way, is just a start. If he needs more, he'll spend more. So can money buy an election? Surely he would battle to get... He certainly won't get a lower house seat. Could he get Senate seats? I think, I think he can get Senate seats, um, mostly up in Queensland. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm certainly not predicting that he does win because we've got to remember... Well, he hasn't named his candidates in Queensland yet and, and of course, there comes the question, will he be one of them? Well, if he's the Senate candidate, it helps, obviously, given the nature of, of, of the party and his prominence within it. Uh, but, look, I think he can win a Senate spot in Queensland, particularly if it's him, possibly another one or two jagged around the country. But let's not forget the new Senate laws, which were in place for the last election, but because it was a DD election and all senators were up, it didn't have the same effect because that distorts the the nature of the vote. Getting very technical there, Professor. We're not going to get too into it. But at this election, it's the first one where the effect of it as it's designed Senate reforms will be in the game. And what that really means, like cutting to the chase, those reforms were supported by both major parties and the Greens because they were to the exclusion of new entrants. Now, So how does it work? OK, well, in essence, you can now vote across the top. You know, you used to have to either vote one at the top and then if you wanted to preference beyond that, you could vote right across below the line. Now you can vote across the top of the line, one, two, three, four, and then also exhaust your vote after that. So long story short, the theory is 
that it makes it harder for new entrants and for minor parties, other than perhaps the Greens because they're more entrenched with their vote. So my point is Clive Palmer has to get his vote to a certain point, uh, otherwise he just gets wiped out on the way through. He might he might do it in, in Queensland, maybe one or two other states. You've got Brian Burston in New South Wales, who's a former uh, One Nation... Has a profile. ...senator, has some profile. Some profile. So, look, it's, it's, it's possible that that he enters the fray, uh, but, you know, not significant, other than if that balance of power in the Senate ends up being a little bit uh, a little bit more on edge than people are expecting. But, yes, his, look, his billboards are everywhere. I'm sure people listening see them in the cities. I see them driving between Sydney and Canberra, you know, I, he, and then, you know, the, the yellow is so prominent as well. And as you say, he's got the money now, uh, even though he looked like he was struggling for a bit of coin a few years back. He's doing well, I'm told, financially. He's won a good court case and got himself a fair bit of money. Um, while in Queensland, of course, the the most on-the-nose politician in the country is Fraser Anning. He's having another crack. The one thing he has this time that he didn't have last time is name recognition. Uh, for most people, that's the name recognition none of us would ever want. But it is name recognition. I don't think he can win. If he was still under the One Nation banner... The combination, despite his views, of that banner attached to Pauline Hanson and his personal recognition off the back of some of the things that he said might be enough to get enough heavily disenfranchised voters, coupled with some bigoted voters, quite frankly, uh, to give him the numbers to get over the line. Without the One Nation banner, though, I think he goes out early uh, and I don't think he's a threat to win. He won't be much lamented, one presumes. No. Uh, so let's talk about this. We we have got ahead of the result of the election and our predictions, which is, I guess, what is tempting to do at this time, but there is still a campaign to be run. We know something about how Bill shorteners as a campaigner because we saw him in 2016. Mm. Uh, let's talk first about Bill Shorten as a campaigner. How effective do you think he is? Is he good? Well, he's energetic and he's good in a strategic sense as a campaigner. He doesn't have that warmth that we were talking about earlier and that's why he's not especially popular. But he does have more warmth in the direct contact with voters than he perhaps has that comes across in the broader spectrum media that he might do. So that helps a little bit on the campaign trail when you are targeting seats and you're out and about you know, amongst voters in targeted communities. So he's not too bad on that front, but it's really more the energy. Uh, in the 2016 campaign, you know, Malcolm Turnbull looked infinitely more prime ministerial than Bill Shorten did, um, but Bill Shorten looked infinitely less prime ministerial for much longer <laughs> because he had more energy uh, than Malcolm Turnbull, and, and that counts. That's true. That reminds me, because because Malcolm did kind of put up the shutters, didn't he, in the last little while? Last oh, yeah, he, you know, he'd, he'd be earlier to bed or whatever it might be, uh, and he just, you know, Bill Shorten was just much more prepared to traverse the country and do what he had to do. So he's a good campaigner. He's a good campaigner, but so is Scott Morrison. I mean, I know that's where you're going next. Yeah. It'll be his first campaign as uh, a leader of a party and he'll be the incumbent. He's the Prime Minister. But, you know, he's a former state director in New South Wales. He's a former marketing man. Uh, I don't know how personable he necessarily is. I mean, he certainly tries to be, but he's probably a little bit Bill Shorten-esque in that sense. I think they're so alike in so many yeah. ways. I mean, you know, I've got to know both men reasonably well down over the years and you're right about Bill Shorten. He's more charming in person. He's genuinely kind of funny. He tells, you know, he... he He's got a self-deprecating quality to his humour. Uh, that sort of stuff works well uh, where perhaps he doesn't operate with the same level of conviction giving a speech in a gigantic hall. It doesn't seem to work yeah. quite so well. Th those are the sort of things of, 
the, the kind of the mysteries of politics. As They'll both be works. energetic, though, I think. Don't yeah, they? look, I think, well, you know, it's, there's one shot for Scott Morrison. He's not going to leave anything in the locker room. He's going he's, he's to give everything he's got. And he is... Uh, I was cautious about making these kinds of judgments because people take a view of how I form the judgment, but he's relatively affable mm. and approachable. He doesn't have that sense of being superior to you, which some politicians have. There was always that suspicion with Malcolm Turnbull. It could be tremendously charming, unbelievably charming, but also when his, the mood wasn't upon him, unbelievably cold and uninterested. And fundamentally aloof. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, the funny thing, yeah, when he was engaged, Malcolm Turnbull was charming, um, but often he was disengaged. I think it was Philip Adams that once said about Malcolm Turnbull, I hope I'm quoting him correctly, that Malcolm Turnbull doesn't suffer fools. The only problem is to Malcolm we're all fools. That's so true. And I don't think that's his permanent position. No. But sometimes you do get the feeling that he's feeling that way. You got the impression that the moment that you'd cease to be of any interest to him and the steel <laughs> doors came down over his eyes and he, and and where was my phone again? Well, he was never the natural politician either, was he? I mean, no. both Bill Shorten and Scott Morrison have played in politics their whole lives. You know, they really have on, on the two sides of the partisan divide. Malcolm Turnbull always wanted to be Prime Minister. We know that from, you know, sort of reports on him and features that he had that ambition as a young kid. But he didn't really then play in politics. He went off and did other things. He made money, he went to the bar, spy catcher, you name it. But these two who are fighting to become or retain the Prime Ministership, they're both political animals and political junkies through and through and, you know, people can make what they want of that. Yeah, so, so what we know of them, they will both go at it hard they both have their limitations. Neither one of them is a, is a kind of a rock star. Neither of them has a kind of a, a Bill Clinton capacity to just make people fall in love with them or an Obama-like capacity or a Jacinda Ardern capacity. So they all just work pretty hard at it, but they're pretty similar at it. On that basis, they'll kind of play each other out to a kind of a campaigning draw. Yeah, but that's interesting because their personalities and the style of how they might campaign, exactly as you're saying... It's a bit of Tweedledum versus Tweedledee. There's not a lot between them. But, and we'll maybe do this another time, when you get into the policies and the differences of what they are campaigning on, this is not a Tweedledum, Tweedledee election. There are huge differences. I would go as far as to say that we've, we're a generation on from the last time that you had such profound disagreements over the direction of the country in terms of what the two major parties are offering up. So you've got Tweedledum and Tweedledee in terms of their backgrounds and how they campaign, but, boy, there is a huge contrast as we get into the policy scripts that they're going to be arguing for or against to become the government. Different visions for Australia, and we will talk about that in our next podcast, Professor PVO. Thanks for your time. Good chatting. listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 
If you want news delivered differently... Rebel Wilson is co-hosting the show tonight. It's confusing, Carrie, because I like, I'm also blonde and white. So. Uh, the project is where it's at. Tomorrow is the National Day of Action Against Bullying and Violence. If it's going down... What the hell is going on? We're breaking it down. Would you go so far as to say that Facebook have destroyed democracy? We need to go back to MySpace, all of us. Yeah. <laughs> it's the news tuned to a different beat. Good times, Carrie. Good times. The project, weeknights on 10.